Welcome back, everybody. Brian Tuck here, your host at Creator Confidential. On this episode, my good friend David Below from Detroit, Michigan, and I break down episode one of The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. A lot of good stuff in this, in what is really, I think, a great piece of storytelling. And uh, we're going to get into it in a minute. So uh, if you're ready, let's uh, let's get after it. You're listening to Creator Confidential with attorney, author, and musician, Brian Tuck. Brian's legal practice is focused on arts and entertainment law, startups, nonprofits, and faith-based organizations. To learn more, visit tucklaw.com on the web. Creator Confidential starts now. All right, so my man in... Detroit, Michigan, Mr. Dave Below has is has called in to just talk Mandalorian and all things Star Wars today, uh, following the uh, the Disney Plus launch that happened this week, which looks to me like a, a landslide uh, success. They had 10 million subscribers on the first day, and uh, the, the stock price went through the roof. Not uh, not surprisingly, and they've got a really really high quality show on their hands called the Mandalorian that John Favreau is uh, writing and directing. And uh, Dave and I both watched it a bunch of times and uh, wanted to get into a few things. So Dave, initial impressions, what did you think? I loved it. I thought it was, I thought it was a brilliant, um, a brilliant way to tie two genres together. Um, And when I was going through uh, another watch of it today with literally a steno pad in my hand and I had my little reader glasses that I've had to start using in the last year. I was, I would literally, I was going to take a picture and send it to you, but, um, but yeah, so I watched it with the, with the remote control and I would see a scene and I'd be like, Oh, I, okay, that's really cool. I'm going to write this down. Um, the thing that I really like about it is that between Favreau and the other guy that is kind of the main um, show. I don't know if he's the showrunner, but I think essentially he's in control. Is this guy named Dave Filoni? Do you know who he is? I do not. Okay, so he directed the first episode, and he has been the main guy showrunning and in control of all of the animated Star Wars stuff of the last basically the ten years of the uh, the Clone Wars, the Star Wars Rebels, um, and then oh, I'm forgetting one. Um, uh, any of that really good 3D CGI animated stuff they did, um, he was always the guy running it. And you might have seen him on a blurb on YouTube or something. Like, he, he's kind of like a, um, uh, it kind of looks like you actually a little bit. No, no, it's it's. I feel but, I feel sorry for that no, individual. Then that's not good. No, no, he just like he like shaved <laughs> head. No, shaved head, and he always wears like a cowboy hat. But it's just like more of a rounder face and dark eyes. But anyway, so he's been the guy in charge of the animated stuff. And so now this is his real first foray into live action. I wouldn't be surprised if he's going to be directing a film down the road because he directed and I think wrote, um, I'll have to look at the credits, that first episode, but it's basically him and Favreau. So you got this guy that has been, you know, he's in the inner circle of the Lucasfilm Star Wars stuff, but he's been handling all of the animated stuff for 10 years. And now he gets to 
flex his muscle in a live action thing. And um, so between the two of them, with Favreau's big, you know, movie making expertise and Filoni, who is just an absolute authority on Star Wars and all of the little isms and the nuances and the touches that he's sprinkled in to the animated versions all the time. Now you get to see that in the live action stuff with the Mandalorian. And there was a bunch that even on my second, um, actually it was my third viewing today, I found some that we can talk about when we get to that point. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's got the goods more than it might seem at the first look. I mean, it definitely seems like it, but then you go back and when you're taking notes, you know, it's kind of like when you're learning a song that you've heard a million times, but you got to learn it for a cover band. And then you go in and you find all these little sneaky things that were really good about the arrangement. Like, wait a minute, why did they only play this for a measure? And it only happens one time in the song. Like you never realize it because you got to chart it, you know, and then you go back and go, wow, that's a really good, that's some good design in there. You know? Yeah. There's uh, yeah, there's a, it's funny. You mentioned that we were, I was just going, this is wildly off topic. But I just had that experience with my band. We were, um, I forget what the song was. I think uh, it was like an old Blood, Sweat and Tears tune or mm -hmm. something that we're adapting for a big band. And playing along with the original, like I've heard the original many, many times and it doesn't seem like there's anything to it. And then you go to try to do it and you're like, wait a minute, this is, uh, yeah, this is a lot harder than than I than I thought it was. But, <laughs> but Oh, but yeah. back to the but back to the show. It's definitely proof that it, the, the you know the Star Wars universe translates to an hourly, you know, a serial um, format where you're getting one episode per week. You know, much like Game of Thrones, which I guess has really brought that back. I mean, I'm I'm glad they did not down you know did not publish all eight episodes of season one because we'd already all be through it yep and then you'd have to wait six months or you know however long to get uh to get the next season so yeah i, I like that yeah. i like this a lot it gives you time to consider it and you know people can you know commute a little bit of community building around around last week's episode and then you see yep. what happens next week i think that that's a great the community build and plus tension is good Tension good with art and and then you know and if there was ever a time in humanity where people need to be made to wait a little bit it's now and uh everyone's so fast with you've got all your media and your notifications and your push notifications and your emails and your texts everything is bombarding us and you know we can leave the house and book a reservation and check google maps and have everything at our fingertips and as much as we think that we like that, it's it's uh, it gets kind of maddening when you realize that um, it's not that good for us sometimes. Because then when you get to go on a you know weekend of drinking with your buddies at somebody's cottage, you realize how much you decompress. And yeah, and, and you're just like, God, this feels good. And you savor that. You you savor being able to feel time, and. You know, or like like you said with the music, you know, like space is good. You know what I mean? Things breathe, and because we get to feel that space and look forward to the next week, it's like, man, this it slows time down. It's like, you know, because my weeks fly by, and I know they must for you because you are 
such a man on the town. I mean, you've got with your work and your books and your music work, it's like anything that can slow time down. It's funny. It, 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 I think it's a good thing. And so I love the fact that I'm like every day, my son is like, when, you know, when's Mandalorian again? Why can't we watch them all? I'm like, nope, we're waiting a week, dude. This is how we did it when I was little, you know? Yeah. You know? Uh, no, I agree with you a hundred percent. I think that, everything being on all the time and available all the time is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. And, you know, that's, there's some macro societal issues, you know, we can riff on later, but, um, (laughs) you know, I just, there's such a coherence when you watch the show, you're immediately sucked into the, you know, you suspend your disbelief, you're sucked into that universe. And there are so many uh, little details that have continuity with the rest. And and you would expect this of Disney. It's a massive studio, yeah. huge budget, the top people, you know, in the, in the business working on this. So I guess it should be expected that it's that way. But this could very easily um, have not worked. You know, we... Oh yeah. The the Disney output, the Disney Star Wars output has been somewhat uneven, I'll say it that way. You know, Rogue mm-hmm. One was very good. I personally I liked Solo. I thought I thought it was I thought it's a good movie and it's one I can return to uh, yeah. every so often and still enjoy it. Um, Me too. Last Jedi maybe not so much, but it's still a good film. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's still our our story of sorts. But yeah. but with the Mandalorian, it all it, it just the tone of it is perfect. Like they yeah. they really did a fantastic job getting all the little things right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The and like you were saying, it like first of all, as Lucas had always said with the first trilogy back in the day, you know, this was all based on Flash Gordon serials, essentially. And, you know, and then the, the whole, the thing of um, when Luke in New Hope goes back and he finds Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen, you know, and they're, you know, burning skeletons now, there was, you probably saw this in your fellow Star Wars nerdery that, you know, th- that wide shot of Luke looking at the, the house that was burning and stuff, that, that was taken from some old Western. So it was basically between Flash Gordon serials and Westerns mm-hmm. and then yep. used all the World War II dogfighting footage for that. So you get all these blends. And so going back to that feel of New Hope and where there was a little bit more of that that Western serial thing, I mean, just watching the show with my notes again, it's like, it's so perfect. It's like, okay, opens. Who's, you know, here's this guy holding something, looking for something. And it's like the lone guy and he walks into the town and here's the bar, here's the saloon. The door opens and here's the gunslinger who walks in. Everyone turns their head. And when they open the door, you get that spaghetti Western whistle sound. Yeah, I noticed, I noticed that. Yeah, that was very clever. And the, and the beauty of it is, is like, but they, but like what they did with, um, you know, with the Moss Eisley Cantina, John Williams just took a, like a big band swing number, but he was like, but we're going to play it on steel Jamaican drums. We're going to take something everyone gets, but we're going to change the voicing. So the whistle sound you hear when uh, Mando or whatever his name is walks in the door it's on like a wood pipe so you get that exotic wood kind of flute thing going 
which is like it's that one little twist that just does the same thing. And then he come, you know, and, you know, they come in the typical thing. Who are you? Who's the guy? Everyone's scared of him. Or, you know, the locals are just like, oh, shit, here we go. And then um, when that's done and then the whole the logo of the Mandalorian kicks on the screen, just like an old Western. It's perfect. You got the foreboding bass notes in the music while you've got that random kind of wandering whistle sound up top in the thing. It's it's just when you go back and dissect it, you just giggle. You're like, oh god, they're just nailing this in every perfect subtle way. Yeah, it was so the first the first thing I wrote down, you know, when I went back to watch it for for this discussion, uh, the first phrase I wrote down was familiar yet not. So yeah, so for to that example, when uh, you know Mando's at the at the door of the saloon, you know, in a western, you'd have two swinging doors that would open in. Right. Exactly. And you'd see his silhouette with with the sun, with the light coming in behind him because the saloon's dark. Here you've got the exact same thing, except the the door opens like the shutter on a camera. Yep. Which puts a completely different twist on on the thing. Yet it's very clear you're watching um, a a heavily Western inspired. scene and and you know going into the saloon or the cantina whatever you want to call it you know we've seen this before you know they're obviously in a new hope and then in um uh force awakens there's a similar scene in in maz maz's place yep Mm -hmm. i think the cool thing about uh mandalorian is they understated everything there's not a lot yeah. of craziness. There's not a lot of crazy creatures. The effects are all, I think, mostly all practical effects in terms of makeup yep. and costuming. And it has a much more organic feel to it. And there's not so much going on that it looks like they just tried to jam everything in there They because they could. It's very. Yeah. It's actually very sparsely. The set is, is pretty sparse. I, I, yeah. It feels to me anyway. Yeah. Oh, no, you're totally right. And that, I think, goes back to um, the great thing about um, the fact that it's Favreau and Filoni, which, <laughs> which sounds like a restaurant name. Um, the But yeah, they get it. I mean, Favreau has proven himself with, you know, with the first couple Iron Man movies and and Filoni has been proving himself with like, look, you know, just we know what the world is supposed to look like. And they also understand the golden rules that Lucas had, at least in the beginning with the original trilogies, which is, you know, yeah, you build all this stuff. But, you know, Lucas himself would say you'd see all these people that would build these amazing sets and these effects. And then they would spend so much film time on it that you didn't follow the story and lose and suspend your disbelief. So they, when people would say, you know, you know, why, how did you make this work so well? He's like, well, you you build the stuff and then you ignore it, you know, you just have to make it be background and then concentrate on the people. But then it, it can be argued that when he was playing with all the CG for the prequels, then he kind of blew that rule out of the water because everything was so great and and eye catching in the backgrounds and foregrounds that you kind of were like, wow, there's just I don't know where my eye is supposed to go. It got they got better as they went, but you know it's that same thing. It's just like just have every detail of the world in the background 
perfect and so that the the diehards can find it but don't languish on it you know don't don't spend so much time i mean like that whole scene when he walks in to go melt down the beskar steel i mean he walks in you're like okay so this is where the mandalorians hang out and i rewound that about five times and turned the brightness up on my tv to be like okay what's that guy who's that guy so the first when you when he first walks in the first guy that's leaning right by the door is kind of like in a white and orange thing. I think he's playing a guitar. Did you notice that? I did. I did not. That the whole yeah. that whole sequence was a little bit. Um, uh, I was more focused on the blacksmith, and there it, there were some yeah. things that didn't really make sense to me. Not because they were um, inconsistent with the universe, or, or you know, or anything like that. Um, I'll hold, I'll hold one of these. You, I'll say this in a minute, but you go, you go first as you walk us through that, uh, that scene. Well, yeah. So he go, the one thing that was, that I wondered about it was, you know, he goes down the road and I mean, maybe we'll learn what this is, how this works later. Maybe it's just an understood thing, but it's like, you know, he walks into a door, he comes down the steps and you can see some sunlight. So you're like, all right. Do people know that Mandalorians hang out here? Like the, that this blacksmith is there? Like how secret is it? Or maybe were there more corridors that he had to get to? But anyway, so he walks in and to his left is the first guy hanging at the door. He's got his arm, he's got his leg kind of crossed and it, he's holding what seems to be an instrument like a guitar. And there's this weird music going on and his fingers are plucking. And I was like, okay, I think he, that person is just hanging out making music. He keeps walking and then there's another mandalorian on his left who is very very much look looks like boba fett like like the helmet has got the red in the um in the t-visor and like he's got a kind of a gray outfit like if you look at it enough it like like you could argue that it's boba fett or it could just be like well okay it's just a different helmet but and they they purposely keep it in the shadows just so you're like whoa look at that and you see the kids running and then over on the other side there was like two Mandalorians that are sitting at a table, maybe playing chess or something. And they've got the little periscope things on their helmets that Boba Fett had, like the little, um, I think, you know, it's like a, I don't know, like a, a eyesight scope mm-hmm. thing. Right. Right. So you're right. kind of like, okay, yeah. So what's the story with that? Like, do you, is that like a pay grade thing or like, you know, is, do you earn those? And, and so anyway, he gets up there and you see the kids running around, they've got helmets and we, and we would later learn, you know, people always keep saying, do you ever take that helmet off? So it appears to be a thing where you don't. And, um, and then, go ahead. Sorry. So this, what you're, um, uh, what you're mentioning makes me think of something that I think I've always thought the greatest strength of the original trilogy is that it was clear to even a casual viewer, you know, that like you see the, uh, you know, you see a new hope for the first time. The real strength of Lucas's storytelling, in my opinion, is that you are made aware that there's a lot of other stuff you don't know and is not explained. So, for instance, yeah. in A New Hope, when Luke meets Obi Wan, and there's a reference he refers to the Clone Wars. And mm-hmm. it's clear Obi-Wan knows what he's talking about. The viewer doesn't know what that is. And it's not explained to you. Just like in life, you know, you know there's history that you're, you were not 
you know, you're not aware of, or you weren't a part of, and you may never know things that happened before. So that when you watch one of these movies, you're not getting everything. You're not getting everything explained to you. Exactly. And I think that's part of Boba Fett, Jango Fett's allure, the Mandalorian's allure when, when the original movies were out was that his background is mysterious. It never really was explained where he was from or what the, you know, what the race of people were like or what their culture was like or what their history was. So I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that if I, if you were directing and writing these stories, you'd be very careful to not over explain stuff because then it loses some of its power. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what made Boba Fett so cool. I mean, that was the, I mean, plus he looks cool and he's still the coolest. And the, um, to your point about that, um, the guy, the, the other guy with Favreau, Dave Filoni in church in charge of the animated stuff. I've watched all those. I don't know if you've kept up with them, but um, there, they did a whole run in the Clone Wars animated show that actually goes to the planet of Mandalore. And you learn about Mandalore and their race. And, you know, they had a violent, they're kind of like Vulcans in a way. They had a very violent past and then they kind of got themselves together and realized that they needed to refine that stuff. And then, of course, from that, there are always the outliers that are like, nope, nope, we're going to stay warriors. We're going to stay intense. And um, so to, to that point as well about referencing the, the Clone Wars and not explaining what it was. When Mando goes up and he's talking to the blacksmith lady and she mentions she sees the Beshkar seal and she says, oh, this this is from the time of the Great Purge. And like, okay, was the purge of the Jedi or was the purge of the Mandalorians? You know, it's like one of those cryptic, epic sounding references that you're like, oh, are we going to learn about this? You know, what what was the purge? Right. You know, in this regard, it's like, like, you know, if it's a purge, like, but this purge has to do with the Empire took all of the Beshkar steel that obviously Mandalore or Mandalorians have used for their sweet ass armor, you know? (laughs) Well, you know what? And she says something that I, I rewound a bunch of times and I still don't get. About the signet. Yeah. She asks him, has your signet been revealed? And he replies, not yet. And I am not, I'm struggling to figure out what, what the heck they're talking about there. I I, was just going to get to that. Yeah. I, I assume we'll we'll learn later, but I, I who knows? Exactly. It's the um, um, it, it, one of the things I rewound with that because when he when she said uh, this would what was it this would be well for a um, for a pauldron, and I was like pauldron. Why do I know that? And a pauldron is the is shoulder armor. When I googled it, um, so I, I thought that she was meaning something else, but then it was like no, she's like okay, we're gonna make you a shoulder armor thing, which which she did. And then when I when she put it on his shoulder, there was like this little flash of something that I, I rewound and I was trying to freeze frame it, thinking like, you know, she's talking about the signet. And it was like, OK, is the signet something that's on his shoulder that the armor covers? You know what I mean? Like, is it is the signet like the, you know, the, the symbol like like uh, like Superman's, you know, the, the right. S that's for hope. Yeah. And it's like because. 
remember, because um, Boba Fett had on his armor that same, it's kind of like the ram horn, ram horn logo that when right. you show the blacksmith, it's like that thing that, and they, the camera pans down from it. He had one of those on his um, armor. I'm trying to remember where, but um, anyway, uh, but maybe that's a thing like, like, yeah, it, it, again, it's one of those things. We're going to learn about the purge over the seasons. We're going to learn, you know, what's what's the significance of a signet, you know, and, and revealing it. Is that like a, you know, do you align yourself with a, a certain sect of the tribe? And then that might pull, you know, that might cause new enemies to be like, oh, wait, you know, okay, you're one of them. Okay, we're coming after you. I don't know. So that's the fun stuff, like you were saying. Yeah, and I, you know what? And I think we're going to witness, this is... This is a guess. Uh, this is a theory. I, I could, I don't know. I might be way off base on this. So, armor has a lot of significance to this type of character. Mm -hmm. And when rewind to the to the sequence, the opening sequence, when the guy comes up to him with the knife and asks him if his armor is Vascar. And right. and takes the knife and drags it across his his you know breastplate, and and it uh, you know leaves a mark. I, I assume from what we learn later about this material that it can deflect knives, it can deflect blasters, it can deflect all kinds of stuff, and not not be injured. Right. So it is established in the beginning that he's wearing armor that is probably you know, not up to code or less than what, you know, the normal Mandalorian warriors would have worn back in the day or what have you. Mm -hmm. So here there's a, I'm wondering if we're seeing like symbolism of as he goes through this first season and essentially builds a suit of armor for himself out of Eskar. What, you know what I mean? It's almost like the characters being developed and physically you're seeing the old armor you know, be replaced by the new, by the good stuff, you know, I'm exactly. not sure. I think, no, I think, I, I think that's a fantastic observation because that works thematically with character development. You know, it's exactly. like, he's, he's, he's learning to, he's, he's, he's putting on better armor and is the better armor, you know, what does better mean? Like, okay, he becomes a better bounty hunter, but is he becoming a better person? Because as we know, um, unless he, he, do we want to talk about the end? Do we want to have any spoilers in this or is it? Sure. Well, let's talk about that when we, when we get there. Um, okay. But like, but like, yeah, like, be, you know, obviously a choice, there's a choice made at the end of the episode. Yes. Falls in line with what, when, when they were putting the trailers out and they were having a little making of teaser things like last summer about mm -hmm. it, like they were talking about how he's, he's one of these things where it's like, yeah, he obviously has no problem doing what he needs to do to be a bounty hunter. He's going to take whoever out he has to, but he's not a bad guy per se. Like they're like, sometimes he's a bad guy. Sometimes he doesn't, he's not a bad guy. And that was neat to see that. And uh, I think, I, I think you are totally right on about as the armor built, you know, as he gets better armor, it's better armor against being a completely ruthless evil guy and it's better armor against the forces of evil that, you know, are going to try to needlessly take him out or just thugs, you know, 
trying to take them out. So that's yeah, a great option. It, it, it's a huge, um, you know, there's a, there's a huge difference between, you know, decisions he makes at the beginning and the end of the episode. Like in the beginning of the episode, when it all goes down in the, in the saloon, he, I mean, he, uh, he cuts that dude in half with the door. Like he, he yeah. ropes his legs <laughs> and drags him through the door and then closes the door on the guy and his legs, you know, it's not, it's implied, but you, you know, we all know what happens when the door closes on the guy. Uh, he gets um, chopped in half. Um, another, you know, there it is, you know, arms off Darth Maul. That's another, there's so many little Star Wars tropes, you know, little, yep. or, I don't know if tropes the right word, but like little things. And I actually have a list of them, but we'll get to those, but keep going. Yeah. Okay. Saloon. okay. So moving, moving through, you know, kind of moving through chronologically through the episode, um, you know, the one other, one other feature, and this is sort of a nod to all the other, to the films, you know, the original trilogy and everything else. We have a ship that's got a strong visual identity to it. It's, you know, Boba Fett had slave one Han Solo has yep. the millennium Falcon and, um, Mando's got yeah. Mando's got his ship, which at first seems kind of, you know, beat up and and whatnot. But yeah, the very the, the, uh, the battle beyond. You remember the ship from Battle Beyond the Stars? It no. was almost this. It's an old cheesy eighty sci fi. If you saw it, you'd remember it. But okay. go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, but it, it. So you know, another nod to, um, you know, another nod to the original trilogy is when they're they're unloading the the bound you know the the fugitives that that mando's frozen yep. in the same way that mm -hmm. han solo comes off a of slave one or goes gets loaded onto slave one on the ramp it's almost the same thing but it's not yeah you know what i mean that's a good one good one i yep that's a good one totally right there was um what was the uh, uh on that same note um there was uh, uh hold on there was another God, there was another visual. One look at my notes. Another visual reference, just like that, that played into. Uh, I'll find it. Keep going. Um, yeah, the just yeah. There, there was lots of like the come the the um, the fugitives coming off. Um, the uh, there's you know the um, the blue guy. Who did you, did you realize? Did you know that that was Horatio Sands? No, we got we have to we have we gotta we gotta uh, talk about casting in a second. But hold hold oh, that thought. God. Yeah, there's a, there are so many great decisions they made on that front there. Oh um, yeah, the uh, well, like you know, someone's you know, there's there's always a, a someone who's giving somebody flack about their ship. They're like, wait, this we're gonna we're gonna go into this. Yeah, you're exactly um, right. It, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> That happens throughout um, throughout the uh, throughout all the films. That happens, right? Because you know, in in episode four, Leia says you came to Luke says you came here in that. Uh, yep. When she sees the Falcon, and then in episode seven, when Ray and uh, Finn are running it, running from the Tie Fighters, she goes, you know, the garbage will do, referring to the same ship. And yeah, it's that's very that's a very subtle, uh, a very subtle nod to the uh, to the originals for sure. Oh yeah, and then like in another um, 
another one where he's when he gets to the planet when he gets to the, the final planet to find the the, the main bounty mm-hmm. like he's scope and he's scoping out over the ridge and he's looking through the binocular thing and then the creature jumps up and blurs the vision of that that's totally what happened with luke with the sand people you know yes, another yeah, yeah. another thing where we've totally seen um and then uh to that point about the the blue guy in the beginning the on my second or my third watch, I was noticing how they were leading up like uh, they were making so many ice references, which was funny because it was like, OK, ice planet, the ice, then the, the guy in the land speeder who taxied him, who was it's it's funny. There's a um, what's his, he's a comedian, Brian something. It was fun to see him in there. And then he's like, yeah, stay off the ice. And then once they get in the ship. The blue guy is just like, he's like, get off the ice is the understatement of the millennium. And then as we find out, he completely gets iced. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is, right. There was these little buildups in the writing that you were just leading you. It's just, it was so, it was so subtle and fun. You know, when you go back, you're like, oh yeah, of course that's going to happen to him. You yeah, know? The, uh, the, the actor you're referring to is Brian Posehn. Yes, exactly. And he's yeah. and he's he's one of these guys. He's been in a ton of stuff. You, uh-huh. you everybody who has seen him, you know, he's been in the Big Bang, uh, Big Bang Theory. Um, what else? Will and Grace, I think he was in, and and a couple others. But he's one of these guys that's always around, and you may not know his name, but he's very recognizable. And he mm-hmm. plays his role straight. There's no, you know, he's he's yeah. he's a comedic actor generally, um, but not not in the Mandalorian. And and you know, kind of switching over to casting for a second, they did mm-hmm. such a phenomenal job assembling really a group of people that don't you wouldn't think would all be together, um, right? And I had no idea that the first the first bounty asset we see get arrested is Horatio Sands. It's, he's not recognizable because of the makeup, but it sounds, it sounds like him. And yeah. when, when he talks, you're like, man, that's, that guy's familiar. Can't, who is that? Um, exactly. Including one, which you, which you had reminded me of, which floored me, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, yep. But it was, it was awesome to see Carl Weathers, you know, Apollo Creed, uh, it was it was great to see him. He's just I don't know. He's just one of these cool guys that that uh, you know it, it it doesn't work a whole lot or it doesn't appear you know you don't see him in a lot of stuff. So um, ha- him having a role is is very very cool. I think is he? Yeah, I, I just have to ask this as an aside for you you East Coast Philly guys is 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 a, is Carl Weathers kind of like just as much of a yeah, he's one of ours kind of guys. Like the way, like I mean, in terms of film characters with Rocky and Philly and that um, not thing. not really. But if he were to do a personal appearance, it would be swamped. Like people, people, <laughs> oh, you know, people would come out to see him, but but not yeah. in the not in the way Sylvester Stallone is. If if, but I know exactly what you're what you're talking about. Yeah, well, it, it, I, I had to ask that because, like, when we talked before about stuff, like, you never said Carl. You would you wouldn't say Carl Weathers. You would always be like, "Dude, it's Apollo Creed." Yeah, he's Apollo. Like, <laughs> and I'm like okay. it's an iconic role. I don't think. Oh yeah. You know. 
I mean, I love it. There was just, there's just a pride in the way you said it. I was like, oh, <laughs> he must be like he's got to be either Brian's dudes or he's just or like he's just as East Coast intensely <laughs> beloved um, that way. Love it. So so before we get to the the really surprise character, at least as far as I'm I'm or the surprise actor rather. So we fast forward through the scene and Carl Weathers slash Apollo Creed. That's not his name in the, in the Mandalorian, <laughs> obviously. Um, sends Mando to an interview for a job. Now, a lot of stuff happens. He, he walks into this. First, he's greeted by one of these eye, uh, eyes. On, you know, he, he comes to the door of this house or this office. I don't even know what to call it. And just like at Java's palace, this eye on a on some kind of articulated arm comes shooting out yep. to see who it is. And then he gains access. And as soon as the doors slide open, you see four stormtroopers, you know, from the original trilogy, the, those uniforms, uh, mm-hmm. all, you know, and they're all dirty and banged up. And it looks like they've, you know, these are the, you know, the empire's gone. So these are the survivors. They're probably... I don't know if they're in hiding or, or what the deal is. I loved that touch, by the way. I love that they they looked like ragged, worn down. There's there's nobody that you know. There's no Captain Phasma that's like you better get your your uniform clean, son. Yeah, yeah this is you know. Like, just, and they looked tired too. They had a little bit. They had just the slightest bit of a slouch. Like they look worn out. And that that's that's an amazing thing for some like the director to be like. Look, you like you guys got uniforms on. You gotta, you gotta, sl- you know, slung your shoulders in a way, like, like so that as soon as we see you, we've got to know that you're angry and tired. And like, if you if you rewatch that scene, every time they show a stormtrooper, every one of them, you can read their emotion through the helmet. It's kind of crazy good how they did that. I, you know, that was on my list as well. You're exactly right. I don't know how they got these actors to project. Uh, project through the through the armor and, and uh, you know obviously the lead character does it uh, Pedro Pascal does it extremely well oh yeah but, but when you see when you see those stormtroopers you know immediately these guys are from an army that just got routed and and mm-hmm. they're you know this is sort of like you know the civil war is over and they're they're soldiers just kind of roaming around looking for something to trouble to cause um yeah that's a great way to put it but it's a very weird vibe in this room and you've got uh uh Werner Herzog plays this unnamed imperial guy he's sitting there in these robes and he's got you know he he has uh the imperial logo on that medallion yeah on a big medallion around his neck He's clearly someone of importance, but we don't know who he is. And there's no other reference. Yeah. Like you said earlier, which plays into the whole like, okay, who's this intensely intriguing guy, you know? And how do you even get him to act in your, in your project is what I want to know. He's not somebody you (laughs) see doing this very often. And he's so good. Yeah. In that, in the scenes that he, he is in. He really kind of steals. He really steals those scenes, or at least for me, he does. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you know, 
Lucas and Spielberg, they love a, you know, they love a good evil Nazi. You know, nobody can make you take some, take a situation seriously, like a, you know, like someone who, who, someone who's weathered looking and has a really intense kind of German accent, you know, who's spacing out his words so that you absolutely understand everything that he needs you to understand, you know? <laughs> and, and so, so these guys are up clearly up to something. And as the, the thing that causes the tension in the scene is Mando approaches the client is what they call him in the credits which is the Werner yeah. Herzog character who is seated. And then this hatch opens in the side of the, a, a door opens in the side of the room. And this younger guy comes out seemingly kind of stumbling in, you know, not sure what he's stumbling into and everybody draws their, their blasters and are, you know, there's this standoff. I want to know who that guy is. Cause he seems like he's a scientist or a doc. For some reason, it seemed to me he was like a doctor or a scientist of some kind. I don't know why yeah. I think that. Like he didn't, well, he wasn't I, wearing anything that it's not like he came out with a lab coat and a stethoscope on or something like that. But on, which is I, which is kind of funny. So yeah. which it's, it, it, which could be like, is he like, is he like some kind of like, is he maybe like a snobby rich kid of an Imperial officer who came up through the ranks and he has sunglasses because he's on this shiny planet but he's also got the white outfit, which kind of harkens to Rogue One, where what was it? Um, um, Director Krennic, bad guy, and it's in, and and also in uh, Rogue One. Like it seemed like the science officers had the white kind of outfits, you know. And um, yeah, I'm trying to now look, think back. I don't recall any character in the entire universe, you know, all eight movies and or whatever it is. I'm trying to think back of anyone wearing eyeglasses and I don't think there are any like this might no. be, this might be the first, I don't know. I mean, it's not a huge deal, but it's an like everything that we see on this screen was a deliberate choice. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. nothing, nothing happened in a project like this by accident. That's for sure. So I wonder what that it means something. I just don't know. Yeah, and that's that, that's another fun one. It's like what's with the sunglasses? Like that's a good one to send uh, to check the Jedi Wikipedia about. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so so we've got so from that scene that scene kicks the action forward quite a bit because it sets uh, it sets Mando off on on the really i think the hinge of the first episode is which mm -hmm. was the last scene so as he as he moves forward from that scene and we won't we've kind of given a lot of it away but i'm sure everybody's seen it by now he ends up on this other planet and he's greeted by a character who is is you know a native from that planet now i absolutely did not recognize who this was Mm -hmm. because you know of the makeup and and the, there's a sizing thing they do that makes this character look physically small right and then you know dave of course in two seconds goes oh yeah didn't you know who that is that's and who who was it nick nolte i'm like what is nick nolte doing <laughs> 
in a cameo role in 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 this show. And you go back, and as soon as you know the name, you go back and listen to the voice, and you're like, ah, oh, that's where I know that voice from. Yeah, it's in watching it the watching it again today in, to prep for the podcast. Like I don't, I'm starting to wonder if maybe they did use a different actor, but I mean, they've got, I was looking at every scene where they have them and I'm like, okay, how would they pull off making Nick in the full outfit, like be smaller, right? And there's ways where it seems like they're doing it, but then there's other times where I'm like, I just don't think that they could, that they, you know, could do that. Is it called forced perspective? Like when you can make, you know, like just the way you place a camera, like looking over someone's shoulder and you can make it look like someone's a giant if you just get the person, you know, like the way they did it in the Hobbit movies. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Like, um, but, but then would Nick Nolte sign up to have this animatronic mask put on his face where they're obviously have to make the eyebrows lift and this this jowly mouth move or, you know, I mean, if, if there's going to be anything in the DVD extras about how did they do this is like is that nick in there or did he voice it over because the mouth isn't moving articulately enough to say the words that he's actually saying so he could easily just do the voiceover of it but i don't know there's something about the facial features and the way the the person's acting that it's it seems nick because nick does that thing where he when he like there's a thing that nick does like if you watch 48 hours or um the other stuff it's like he'll like kind of lean his head to the right and kind of pull his chin in and raise his eyebrows and look at you and go, are you sure you want to do that? Something like that. And I kind of noticed that in this, this performance, you know, like the more I watch it, I'm like, God, that just seems like Nick. Yeah. But, I know what you mean. It really does. Um, and I mean, this as a compliment. I can't tell to what extent that's CGI or to what extent those are practical effects on that yeah. character you I can't think, really i can't i mean at least i can't tell i don't i'm not sure i th- i think it's a combination but I, I but it seems like it's it's a helmet because there's real eyes behind that but then it's kind of like this ugnaught kind of face and i wonder if that's what he is i wonder if he is an ugnaught but they seem pioneer you know in cloud city but who knows that's another fun thing to find out anything is you possible know? i mean yeah. the uh so uh, we also have another, so another, um, another sort of macro big picture nod to the original films is that the whole concept that there's a bounty hunters guild, which I find a little bit humorous, that there's a union uh-huh. for these guys, but but there is, and it was ref, you know, if you watch Empire Strikes Back when they. Uh, you know, they put a bounty out on Han Solo and they call in all these guys. You see a lot of these same types of characters from Empire Strikes Back appear in Mando just in slightly different forms. Um, But when you hear, you know, so, you know, there was this very tall silver droid in in Empire called IG-88, I think was the name of the character. Uh, In in Mando, there's... um, there's a character called IG-11, which I think it looks, it appeared to me they they were setting up a team. Like we're going to see this right. character in future episodes. Um, and, uh, you know, to, so when he, when he barges into the last scene and starts quoting all these regulations and rates 
and and telling people I've already issued the writ of seizure, uh, that kind of stuff. It just it 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 made it very relatable that there is some bureaucracy uh, behind <laughs> all this coolness. You know that there's yeah, there's, there's there's rates and there's credits that be are given uh, for for capturing and 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 all of this stuff. Um, there, there totally is. If, if, and if you don't mind, I can, I can nerd out sidebar a little bit on that. Do it. Um, back, um, back before. So in the early nineties, when the star Wars novelizations started coming out, like, uh, did you read any of the, like the, you know, the, the continuing star Wars adventures, like I, I never, the Timothy Zahn? I never like went that? that far. I never really got into that, but, uh, you know, there's well, there's a ton of them, and there's a bunch that are really good. Any of the ones that Timothy Zahn did, and I know that technically, once Disney bought Star Wars, they had to say, okay, all that other stuff is not technically canon anymore, right? And so, um, but there, there's a bunch of them that are really good. But there was a really good series where there was three of them, and they're just quick paperbacks. And if you like Bounty, the this, the Mandalorian, Boba Fett stuff, they're awesome reads. Your your inner twelve year old would just be like wired on Doritos and caffeine and pizza reading them. Um, <laughs> but what they are, there's, there's this series of them. And I still have mine, but they're called, I think they're called the bounty hunter wars. And it's pretty much follows Boba Fett over three paperbacks of this long range thing. And it's, it's basically like the Mandalorian. It's like, okay, he's going through and he's got this bounty and he's, he's dealing with Bosk and he's dealing with Dengar and all these other bounty hunters and they will all like I think it's if I remember right, they all end up working together on one on a big giant heist. And through that, you kind of learn that there is a bounty hunter guild and that the you, that bureaucracy you're talking about is totally legit. And how, you know, some people play it, like you know, kind of like uh, Gross Point Blank with John Cusack and Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. Some of the guys just want to be rogue. They just want to be like, just let me do my thing That's such and I'll, an obscure, I'll pay my dues. That, that is such an obscure reference. Gross point blank. Okay. My God. Go ahead. I second. actually, uh, it's funny. That, and that's like just up the road from me where that, yeah. that was set. Yeah. Um, one of my good musician buddies lives there. And, um, but yeah, but it's the same thing. And you know how Ackroyd's like, come on, man, just, you know, stay in the union, stay in the guild. Like we got great benefits and, you know, whatever. We got a dental plan and, and, you know, <laughs> profit sharing and, and stuff. Oh my God. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, but yeah, if you're, it, it, I'll, I'll send you a link to those and stuff like that, but those are a great read if you ever want to go down the wormhole of cool Boba Fett bounty hunter world. But yeah, it's, that's totally legit. There, there is a guild. So I think that's something that they might've, I don't know if they took it from the books or, touched on it but that is a great thing and i think that ig11 is going to stay because when you you know not to spoil anything but i mean you you there's a reason to believe that he's not going to be back by the end of this episode but when you look at the promo um thumbnails on you know when you pull up turn on disney plus whatever a lot of the promotional things i think he's part of a team so i think they're going to keep him up and i and it's also works into one of those Western tropes that we were talking about with tropes is that IG 11, you know, when you watch Westerns and stuff, there's always like the main guy, but there, there's always a sharpshooter. Remember like doc holiday and yeah. tombstone. Yep. 
Very much yeah, like so. Zoe, there's only the sharpshooter the, who's a little bit off, you know, in their personality, but you need them. You know what I mean? Like they, they come through. And, these, and that, that quick relationship that they seem to develop between Mando and IG-11, where they were like, you know, he was just like, why don't we just work together, you know, do this, and, you know, we'll, we can split things. And it's like, it's just, it was really fun to kind of see them kind of go, okay, because you expect Mando to be like, nope, stay away, this is mine. And it was one of those little moments again where you're like, okay, he seems to be kind of a decent guy. Like, he's not just going to be, you know... He's not just completely out for himself. He'll work with someone if he thinks it can help him. Well, you know? he's, he's very pragmatic because as they're both getting shot at, um, yeah. the discussion is let's team up and we'll split the money, right? Right. So, and IG-11 uh, accepts it. So, yeah, he it's they've really laid the, the groundwork for the complexity of the character. He's obviously got some backstory as an orphan, I think. He's got mm-hmm. a soft spot for for those people, yet mm-hmm. he will chop somebody in half that he just met <laughs> if if the guy is getting in the way of him uh, get you know arresting somebody. So he definitely has the thing of like, if you're gonna try to end me, I have no problem ending you. You know. So, <laughs> so the ending, you know, by now I'm sure most people have seen it or or know this but i was floored when this was such a great twist at the end and and, you know you think you know where this is going for for you know if i I don't even know how long the first episode was 45 minutes i think you think you think you know where it's going 98 percent of the time and then the last two minutes um turn the whole thing on its head because it's revealed that the asset, the, the bounty that they're going after um, is a, a, a baby of Yoda's species, like a baby baby, like there's a baby carriage and it's floating in the air. I don't know how they do that. And, yep. um, and this, uh, you know, really is the first time I think you have seen anybody other than Yoda of that race or species or whatever you want to call it. There, there, there is one. No, there, the only other, well, the only other time in the films is in the Jedi council in um, Phantom Menace. It, it, I don't know if it's Phantom. It's in one of them. One of the prequels, Phantom Menace or attack of the clones. There's a female Yoda character who's sitting in one of the seats in the Jedi council, that circular chamber that's at the top of the spire. There is, there is one. She's got like a hat on, but there is another, um, was it a hat? Yeah, no, but there's there's a female Yoda species, and they and like you said to your point, you see her. They never reference her. They never talk about her, but she's there. You know, and you're like, wait a minute, there's another Yoda. You know, type. Well, so, and and part of the reason why it's a a, a really um, unexpected turn is that at the beginning when Mando accepts the job, he is told. Yep that the asset is 50 years old, five zero. Yep. So you're expecting like a middle-aged man or, you know, or, or woman. And here they're in a, um, here that at the end of the trail, they're confronting a, a really, you can only describe it as a baby carriage, I guess. Um, yeah. So if that creature is 50 and this, timeline we're in the timeline about five or ten years after 
Return of the Jedi ends, Mm -hmm. this creature was alive at the same time Yoda was alive. Right. So we don't know if they're related, if it's a reincarnation, if it's, I mean, it could be any, it could be anything. Who knows? I don't know. Exactly. It's amazing. And it's like, and where, and you know, where did it come from? Like who, why, why is it, uh, you know, who has it? Why do they have it? Why, you know, and why do the Imperials want, you know, I mean, you, you can probably assume, but the way that that doctor, you know, Dr. Sunglasses was like, you know, he like, he wants it alive, you know? Yeah. They were, they were, they were, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no. Yeah. No, like just his demeanor, the way when, um, the client guy was like, look, if you've got a, you know, if you can prove, prove identification via termination or prove termination via identification, blah, blah, blah. And the guy was like, no, 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 no. That wasn't what we were talking about. You know? So I wonder if it's going to be interesting to see if this doctor has, somewhat of a good heart because he, he kind of came off as a light lighter hearted, you know, he, he didn't come off as like a, we need that thing now so we can kill it. You know, it's the whole thing seems sinister to me that they yeah. wanted, um, they wanted the asset alive. They were, and they were really yeah. super specific about that, which is not what you hire necessarily what you hire these guys for. So, but who? But then somebody told IG Eleven to, to terminate it. Remember? Yes. Because, because yeah. Or, or as you were getting to, I should say. So you know, as I watch these, um, you know, as I watch these, I start wondering what we are going to see in the Rise of Skywalker in December from the Mandalorian universe, because. Mandalorian will end right before Rise of Skywalker comes out. Right, like so, Episode Eight will come out in yep. uh, what is this? I don't even know what year this is. We're in November, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, okay. So actually, it won't. Like most of the most of the Mandalorian will um, will have been released by the time Rise of Skywalker comes out. However, not the whole series. So, right. We will see. I don't know. Yeah, there'll be there's there they'll totally be a tie-in. They'll they'll there will be because I mean it's it's all about stretching it out. Like you know, like I mean it's Disney and it's Marvel. Like it's like okay, we can stretch this out and we can keep seeding all of these things as incredibly well done as Marvel did. You know, and um, and yet it will stay just as. Um, cloudy in some ways as you were saying that will just string us along there could be things that already happened in this episode that we're going to learn about in three years and some other <laughs> yeah you know yeah i don't it's, know it's it, it, it's uh i love it and and on that point about the 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 asset being a tiny you know uh, a baby yoda is that one of the things i noticed was and, and this is just me drawing things but i, I wonder if the baby yoda thing is going to be like a long-standing part of this whole series because it's like in what like when you talk about um symbolic you know design that kind of uh um uh what's that i can't think of the phrase or the term anyway but as soon as when i was watching it again and i'm looking at the yoda and it's like okay how do you know a yoda a yoda has got the round face and it's got the wide that got the long ears up top mm-hmm. and i was thinking about how that's what the ship looks like 
That's what you know. His like his ship has got the the head and the arcing jet engines that kind of have that Yoda kind of thing. And I just I I always wonder if that's like was that on purpose? Or did they make the ship first, or did they know like look this guy is gonna the, the Mando's thing is always gonna be keeping this yoda species alive like through the whole entirely show. well entirely possible that's like, very clever symbolism, yeah you know well, this if, is deep deep if, nerdery and you know conspiracy nerdery, no, no, I mean, <laughs> it, we're just breaking the story down like if if he yeah. so if mando's got a, a a backstory of being an orphan mm-hmm. and And, and makes a decision to deviate from the job, from the objective, to protect what he, I guess, what he perceives as an orphan. Then, mm-hmm. may, yeah, maybe that's the, you know, that's the big arc of season one. Um, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? I think, yep. I think we're going to find out more next week is what I, is what I think for sure. Um, yeah. And I absolutely can't wait. It's just, I just like looking at the thing. You know, just like when I was watching it again this morning, I'm just like every shot just looks so good. And the technology, we, like we're we're finally at the point where the, we have the computer systems and the hard drive space and the resolution capabilities to make the seamless CG work with uh, live action photography and make it. I mean, gosh, it's pretty literally seamless, you know, pretty literally. What a phrase. Anyway. Vis- um, yeah, like, visually, it, it, it looks beautiful. The ice, They've done a great know? job with it. Oh, yeah. It's just the reflections in the armor. And, like, you can do anything you want, and it doesn't look like it. Like there's a cartoon happening around it, you know? Like, because you know that they're just painting in all those moisture evaporators off in the desert and stuff like that. And they probably plant a few, but they're like, well, wait, we can make this look totally real out in the desert. Like, we don't have to build that. We can just draw it. And it looks and usually in, in the past. You could kind of tell, you know, because yeah, now you can't. The, the, the yeah. visual effects are so good now. You really can't tell what's real and what's yeah. not, which is the, which is the objective, which is the whole point of the, 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 the thing, right. I think. It's fantastic. Like one of my favorite shots is just in the even in the beginning is when he's first walking on the wood planks across the ice towards the little saloon town. You know, just like the it, it's just so stunning when you look at it on an ice TV and it's like the clouds and the, the color of the ice and the way that it's blending into the little the, the path. And you know that he was just walking on a blue screen or something like yeah. that or a green screen. Yeah. But whatever they did, you're just like. God, that looks perfect. And, you and, you know, or even when his uh, ship lands, you know, like the way they can do that when he lands on the desert planet before right. he meets Nick. He, like it just comes down. And the thing that I love about Favreau, when he did Iron Man, and I think we talked about this before, is that when they were pitching him to do Iron Man and they were like, oh, we're going to CG this and whatever. He's like, no, 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 no. He's like, you guys, the CG stuff, it's too quick and it doesn't look, it, things don't look like they have mass and they don't look like they're reacting to the laws of gravity. You know, he's like, and so he, he made the, the industrial light magic guys watch like more footage of like jet engines and stuff. He's like, I want Iron Man to fly like a real plane and I want him to bank and I want him to like, you know, quiver a little bit. 
mm-hmm. when, you know, air and stuff like that. So when Mando's ship lands, you know, like when they do that kind of stuff, they get it right. Like it doesn't just kind of land quick and it's fine. It's like, no, you got to slow down. And, and when, and, and it's in those moments where you can see, usually that's when the CG kind of flattens and your brain can kind of, kind of your brain registers like that's not real. Something's not real. The way the light fell on yeah, the, yeah. the plating. And like, I watch that scene over and over again. And I'm like, God, that's good. Like, I can't, you know, you know, it's not real, but maybe they, maybe they did a model, you know, maybe they did it with a model and then, you know, composited it. I don't know, but it's just, it's so good. They're getting it all right. They're giving things mass and weight and the way things actually move, you know, it's real guys falling off the tops of roofs when they have the shootout at the, at the thing, you know, they're, you know, like make a guy fall off the thing into a bag. Don't just see, don't do a CG stunt guy. It's like our brains can tell now, you know, for now. And yeah, for for a little while longer, maybe one or two more years and then all bets are off. Yeah. And then the, yeah. And then everything's deep fake. And then it's like, Oh boy. Well, I think we've, uh, we've definitely covered the highlights. Uh, so, Check it out if you haven't, and if uh, you're still with us throughout this lengthy rant of ours, thank <laughs> you for listening, and thanks to Dave for checking in on his. Uh, see, he's always prepared. That's why Dave's the best. He at this kind of stuff. Oh. He just he knows the stuff inside out out. And uh, oh, can I leave you with one more trope that I noticed? Yeah, please. When he's talk, when the, and first of all, thank you for involving me to do this again. And we had such a good time when we did solo, and uh, um, and it's just fun to be able to just go, you know, to yeah. nerd out and go out like this <laughs> with a fellow Star Wars fan. Um, but uh, yeah, this is fun. Let's keep doing it. And uh, but uh, one of the other tropes that I wrote down that I liked was um, when Mando when he meets Nick Nolte, and it's like it's all it's just like Luke. And then it's like they meet and it's like, hey, we're going to meet out in the desert. And then it's like, OK, follow me. And then he cuts to the wide scene of like, oh, and this is where Nick Nolte lives, like Ben Kenobi's house. And then and Mando's sitting down like Luke or was like Luke was and uh, Nick Nolte's making him a drink. And then they sit down to have the conversation. And in that moment, there, there, I think it might have even been before that there was a moment where the, the, the moment of mentorship, the moment of I'm meeting a wise older guy that's going to help me go on to a bigger thing. And there was that twinkly fairy dust kind of music that plays between Nick and Mando that played when like Ben was telling Luke stuff. And I was like, oh, that's right. It's the it's it's the it's the fairy dust twinkly music of, hey, this person is being enlightened by this older mentor who's about to send them off on a path that's going to change everything. And I was like, gosh, damn it. That's a man. They did it again. They just, they know their stuff, you know, they Filoni made, knows it's Star Wars. We didn't even, and we didn't even really cover that. They made some very interesting choices with the soundtrack because it is nothing. It, it is, it, it is, it's nothing like the, the John Williams being, yeah, germanic sounding symphonic music it's it's there's a lot of electronic elements in it there's a rhythm there's much more of a sense of pulse in the soundtrack to this piece than there is in anything else like even like rogue one for a minute 
deviates off the symphonic track when they're when they're flying over Jeddah. Uh, mm-hmm. You have sort of this midwest uh, midwestern, good God, Middle Eastern uh, hand drum uh, rhythm that's underneath the symphony in that, which is which was a new element. But here in Mandalorian, it's a completely different sound palette, yet it feels familiar, yet it's completely yeah, I different. Think, I don't know how they did I it. Think, I think they're operating, I think they're, like you said, it's it's the same, but it's different with a twist. And it's following mostly, it seems, the the the, the Western, the spaghetti Western things, but they changed the instrumentation a little bit. Like when Mando and Nick get on those glarps or the glurps or whatever those things are and they ride. I mean, that's a clap that, I mean, they're riding and it's these old, these helicopter shots over the thing. And it's like the, you know, the cowboys on the horses taken off to go towards the thing. And if you listen to that music, you're like, that's, that's Western music. That's like, Hey, here we go. You know, here, here goes the, the, um, not the caravan. What do you call it when it's the cowboys? But you know what I mean? And yeah. it's like, yep. they, it's all these heroic shots of like, Hey, we're riding our horses through the canyon and over the mountains and through the streams. And you're like, but it's a bounty hunter and it's Star Wars and it's an Ugnaught. And these things look like, you know, um, gremlins with two legs. It's so it's I mean, it's great because it's that classic mash of like, look, just use the stuff that, you know, works and give it a little twist, you know, give it a little give it a, a new little sci fi sheen of turn it on its head. And it's going to work on the brain because it's all the right rhythms. It's all the right colors, but or it's all the right rhythms and the pulses, like you said. And then if you just put a new color on it, a new coat of paint, it's going to seem exotic. And that's that's the fun stuff about Star Wars, you know, like it's like like Mos Eisley Cantina, you know, it's big band music on steel drums. Yep. It, it's <laughs> it's great. And steel drums and oboes, I think is what it was. So good. All right. Well, we will all be looking forward to episode two next week. And I look forward to doing this again. And uh, it's a good time to be a fan of this kind of stuff because it's going to be a good year. Lots of content coming our way. And yep. And we got and now we know that there's going to be an Obi-Wan series just like it in the works. Right on. All right, Dave. Thanks, my man. I will talk to you soon. And uh, if you haven't subscribed to the show, we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, um, anywhere you find your podcast. Just uh, Spotify, we're on there. So just uh, just follow it, and as as new episodes get uploaded, you will you will get a notification. Thanks for listening to Creator Confidential. To get future episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, or follow the show on SoundCloud. For updates about future podcast episodes, essays, or live events, just text the word CREATOR to 66866. That's CREATOR to 66866. You can also visit us on the web, Twitter, or Facebook. Creator Confidential is a production of Force 10 Media and the Tuck Law Offices.